Hey there, this is the Groovy Historian and I'm here to provide a groovy stroker world. I cover various history from ancient history to modern history. I write articles, I do podcasts and videos and have a genuine interest in ancient Egypt as well. i just come back from my recent travels. I have lots of vlogs and videos that should be uploaded. And if you'd like to see more content from me, perhaps follow me and find me on Groovy Historian everywhere. And thank you for Ryan for letting me introduce the topic. Big part of it is Egyptian revolt against Persia with Athenian aid on the Ancient Greek podcast. Thank you guys and stay groovy everyone. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 42, The Undeclared War. Today's episode is brought to you by our new Patreon supporters, Francine and Sam Parker, as well as PayPal donors Laurent Vermer, Niels Guypen, and Ben Mon. I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you too can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. With the ostracism of Cimon and the assassination of his colleague, Ephialtes, Pericles took the lead in shaping Athenian domestic and foreign policy for the next several decades. We will discuss his domestic policies in future episodes, but for now, we are going to focus on his foreign policies, as hostilities with Persia were still in the background, while tensions with Sparta and their allies began to escalate. The period from 460 to 445 BC is sometimes called the First Peloponnesian War by modern scholars, as there occurred an undeclared war between the Athenians and the Spartans and their Peloponnesian League allies. For the most part, though, Sparta wasn't involved due to internal issues, and so it was mostly a war between Athens and other members of the Peloponnesian League. Furthermore, it wasn't really an overarching war per se, but a series of battles, often punctuated by considerable intervals of peace. In this vein, the famous Peloponnesian War which was fought fairly steadily for 27 years, would be the Second Peloponnesian War. But for all intents and purposes, it was the true Peloponnesian War. Regardless, the fact that historians have labeled the war, or wars, as Peloponnesian instead of the Athenio-Spartan War, reflects the fact that the principal sources are Athenian, just as we know the Trojan War and the Persian Wars from the Greek standpoint, and not really as the Greco-Trojan or Greco-Persian Wars. Although Thucydides himself called it the War of the Athenians and the Peloponnesians. The spark for this so-called First Peloponnesian War was a quarrel between Megara and Corinth in 461 BC. When the Megarians went to Sparta and asked for their help, 
The Spartans told them that they were not interested and that it was their business, not ours. Their hands-off attitude must have been encouraged by the fact that they were still recovering from the earthquake and the Helot rebellion that came after it, and really didn't need more trouble. As a result, the spurned Megara then went to Athens, saying that if they would help them against Corinth, the Megarians would leave the Peloponnesian League and join the Athenian side. On the one hand, Megara, a commercial state poor in agricultural resources, was a trade rival of Athens for centuries. But on the other hand, Athens and Corinth did not always get along either, and Corinth, with its substantial navy, was an indispensable ally of landlocked Sparta. And so, the Athenians were confronted with an extremely tough decision. Naturally, by accepting the Megarians' plea, they would anger the Corinthians, who as the most powerful ally of Sparta, would naturally anger the Spartans as well, and would very likely bring war with the Peloponnesians. However, the Athenians greatly cared about having the Megarians on their side, because if they controlled Megara, which is situated on the right side of the Isthmus, to the left of Athens, the Athenians would cut off access for the Spartans, not only to Athens and Attica, but also central Greece, because of the mountain range that runs through Megara. Essentially, the Athenians would be invulnerable to a military land attack if they preemptively chose that path, instead of waiting for Sparta to dictate terms and show up in Attica unexpectedly. Well, the Athenians must have believed war with Sparta was inevitable, because after what was presumably much debate in the Ecclesia, they voted to accept the Megarians into their alliance, and the dangers that went along with it. Furthermore, in 461 BC, the Spartans finally gave up trying to put down the Helot revolution at Mount Ithome. The Helots surrendered on condition that they be allowed to live freely. The Spartans agreed, but with the stipulation that they must leave the Peloponnesus and never return. Thucydides mentions that the Spartans had received an oracle from Delphi, telling them to let go of the suppliants of Zeus at Ithome. Regardless, the Athenians looked to use this to their advantage. Somehow, they lately had acquired control of a town on the north shore of the Corinthian Gulf, called Nopactus, away from the Locrians, and so they decided to get involved and turned it over to the Helots, fleeing the Peloponnesus. There, the Helots settled with their women and children. This bold action gave the Athenians yet another foothold for Western penetration, and it also meant that Athens now had the means of intercepting and harassing the Corinthian merchant ships, which sailed forth with cargoes for the West. Not only were the Spartans upset at this, but this also drove another wedge between the Athenians and the Corinthians. Because Athens, with their influence in Achaea, their alliance with Megara, and now their control of Nopactus, was able to present a serious threat to Corinthian western trade. Then, Athens began to build a series of long walls connecting Megara with the port of Nisii on the Saronic Gulf which is where Athens is located as well, and also to gain control of the town of Pegai, which is on the northern side of the Isthmus, which they fortified and stationed forces there. Basically, they built a physical barrier to prevent Sparta from moving into Attica. Thucydides calls this the event that marked the beginning of Corinthian hatred for Athens. Corinth felt Athens was encroaching on their territory. It was bad enough that they settled the Helots on the northern coast of the Gulf of Corinth, but now, with an allied port on their borders, the Athenians could potentially gain a stranglehold on the shipping lanes. In addition, the Athenians began to build long walls, from the city of Athens to the sea, one to Phaleron Bay, 
and the other to Piraeus. This prudent strategy had the effect of making the whole city complex impossible to besiege by land, since supplies could always be brought in by boat. Around the same time, they engaged Hippodamus, a native of Miletus, who apparently wrote a treatise on town planning to design the port area, which he laid out on a grid pattern similar to that of his home state in Ionia. With the two states locked into a commercial rivalry, these Athenian moves were bound to spark hostility in Corinth, and it was predictable that Corinth would seek the help of its powerful ally Sparta in their conflict with Athens. And so, the tension between Athens and Corinth played a large role in determining the diplomatic relations of the Greek states, and it would soon lead to outright warfare. The Greek world found itself quickly divvied up between the two hostile camps, Athens and Sparta. In 460 BC, Athens took the initiative, abandoning the policy of Cimon and beginning open hostilities with various allies of Sparta. The fighting took place in and around the eastern Peloponnesus, for the most part, but nothing decisive happened. Hostilities began when the Athenians and the Argives repelled a Spartan attack on Oenoi, a city in the Argolid. The Athenians then attacked two naval allies of Corinth, Halias and Kekraphalia. At Halias, they were beaten by a combined land force of Epidarians and Corinthians, but they won a naval battle at Kekraphalia a small island between Agina and the coast of Epidaurus. Alarmed by Athens's aggressiveness in the Saronic Gulf, Agina entered into the war against Athens and combined their powerful fleet with that of the Peloponnesian allies. And so, Pericles exhorted the Athenian Ecclesia to wage war with the Agonetans in order to remove Agina as the eyesore of the Piraeus, as he put it. In the resulting sea battle, the Athenians gained a great naval victory against the combined Agenetan-Peloponnesian fleet, capturing 70 ships total. The number of sunken ships, though, is not given. Thucydides describes the sea battle as great, and so the Athenians must have employed a very large navy, well over 100 ships, in order to gain such a notable victory over such a notable opponent. The Athenian fleet then landed at Agina and led by Leocrates, they placed the city under siege. As an aside, Leocrates was one of the generals at Plataea, and also was a famous Athenian boxer, for whom Simonides wrote a lyric ode. Anyways, this was the first dispute not involving their allies that the Athenians settled with the Delian League fleet. At the same time as they were facing off, with armed opposition, of their rival Greek powers against the growth of their empire and the expansion of their trade, the Athenians chose to embark in an enterprise beyond the limits of the Greek world. Over the winter of 460-459 BC, the Athenians received an invitation from Inaros, a charismatic Libyan prince who stirred up the Egyptians to revolt from the Persian Empire, asking them to send a force to help. The Egyptians were particularly prone to revolts after all. If you remember, it was during an Egyptian revolt that Darius had been killed almost three decades earlier. Well, it seems that following the death of Xerxes and the succession struggle that ensued before Artaxerxes finally took the throne, the Egyptians thought it was a good time to revolt again. Inaros had driven out the tax collectors from the northern marshes and took control of the Nile Delta, establishing his headquarters at Maya, a city above Pharos but he needed additional help to take Memphis and to defeat the Persian garrison station there. 
And so, the Athenians agreed to help, and they directed the League fleet, led by Keratomides, which was already campaigning in Cyprus, to support the revolt in Egypt. Indeed, it is possible that the fleet had been dispatched to Cyprus in the first place, because with Persian attention focused on the Egyptian revolt, it seemed a favorable time to campaign on the island. They probably felt compelled to aid Egypt, because the Egyptians provided the greatest source of grain in the Mediterranean area. And well, as we have discussed, ad nauseum, the Athenians were always interested in sources of grain, and so they believed that they could profit from helping them. Furthermore, the Athenians were still officially at war with Persia, and so it was perfectly reasonable for them to try and strip the Persians of their richest profits, while making themselves richer in return. Egypt was much more important to the Persians than Cyprus after all. At the same time, this campaign may have been an attempt to put pressure on the Persians to either resume or begin peace negotiations, depending on whether you believe that Callias had previously attempted peace negotiations with Artaxerxes, as we mentioned last episode. Since Inaros had already done most of the hard work of gaining a power base in the Nile Delta, it probably seemed to the Athenians that they would only be involved in a mopping-up operation. Ultimately, however, the Athenians were drawn into a long campaign that would prove to be a very costly error of judgment in foreign policy. Thucydides implies that the whole fleet was diverted to Egypt. Diodorus agrees with him that it was an enormous expeditionary force of 200 ships, but Stesius said that it was only 40 ships, while the rest remained on the coast of Asia Minor, because such a large fleet was unnecessary. Regardless, by this time, the Athenians must have had tremendous confidence in themselves, almost to the point of hubris, in order for them to take on two wars at once. A heading on a stella erected by the Athenian tribe Erechthys testifies to the extent of Athenian activity in war during 460 and 459 BC. Quote, Of the tribe Erechthys, the following died in the war in Cyprus, in Egypt, in Phoenicia, in Haliais, in Agina, and in Megara in the same year. End quote. Then the stele lists their dead heroes, 177 in total. And this is for only one out of the ten Attic tribes, and for one year only. So it's clear that the Athenians had considerable forces committed on multiple fronts. Diodorus's account is the only detailed source we have for the Egyptian campaign, as Thucydides' account is very brief. He reports that the Persian relief force had set up their camp near Pampramis, a city on the Nile Delta that was a cult center for the Egyptian equivalent of the Greek god Ares. When the Athenian fleet arrived in 459 BC, they sailed up the Nile to join with Inaros' forces. Then, the combined Athenian and Egyptian fleet accepted battle from the Persians. The rebel forces, led by Inaros and whose numbers are unknown, confronted the Persian force that numbered 400,000 and was commanded by the satrap of Egypt, Achaemenes, the youngest brother of Xerxes and uncle of the current Persian king Artaxerxes. At first, the Persians' superior numbers gave them the advantage, but eventually the Athenians broke through the Persian line, routing them and even killing Achaemenes. Diodorus reports that a quarter of the Persian army was slaughtered, that being 100,000 of their 400,000 total. These numbers are definitely exaggerated. Regardless, to show proof of their victory, Inaros sent the dead body of Achaemenes to the Persian king. Those who survived fled to the citadel of Memphis. At sea, 
The Athenians defeated the Persians in a naval battle, capturing 20 and sinking 30 of their ships, though Keratomides lost his life in the process. Afterwards, the two forces linked up, but the combined Egyptian-Greek forces could not dislodge the Persians from the citadel of Memphis, and a siege would thus last for the next four years. According to Thucydides, Artaxerxes tried to bribe the Spartans into invading Attica, which would have forced them to withdraw their forces from Cyprus and Egypt, but the Spartans declined for whatever reason, most likely because they were still licking their wounds from the devastating earthquake. According to Thucydides, Themistocles died at Magnesia in 459 BC, at the age of 65, from natural causes. However, perhaps inevitably, there were also rumors surrounding his death, and so Plutarch provides an alternative ending to his life. He writes that when Egypt rose in revolt with Athenian aid, Artaxerxes ordered him to lead the fleet against his fellow Athenians. Finding that he could not keep the promises that he had made to the great king, he decided that he would rather end his life than fight his own countrymen, and so he committed suicide by drinking bull's blood. Upon learning the cause and the manner of his death, Artaxerxes was said to have admired Themistocles even more, and continued to treat his friends and children with kindness. After his death, Themistocles' bones were transported to Attica on his request, and buried in his native soil in secret, since it was illegal to bury an Athenian traitor in Attica. The Magnesians, too, built a splendid tomb in their marketplace for Themistocles, which still stood during the time of Plutarch, and continued to dedicate part of their revenues to the family of Themistocles. Plutarch indicates that he met in Athens a lineal descendant of Themistocles, who was also called Themistocles, that was still being paid by these revenues, some 600 years after the events in question. Themistocles died with his reputation in tatters, a traitor to the Athenian people, as the savior of Greece had turned into the enemy of liberty. However, his reputation in Athens was rehabilitated by Pericles in the following decade, and by the time Herodotus wrote his history, Themistocles was once again seen as a hero. Thucydides evidently held Themistocles in some esteem, and is uncharacteristically flattering in his praise for him. Diodorus also extensively praises Themistocles, going as far to say, quote, But if any man, putting envy aside, will estimate closely not only the man's natural gifts, but also his achievements, he will find that on both counts, Themistocles holds first place among all of whom we have record. Therefore, one may well be amazed that the Athenians were willing to rid themselves of a man of such genius. End quote. When you take into consideration that Diodorus's history includes such luminaries as Alexander the Great and Hannibal, this is high praise indeed. Plutarch, however, offers a more nuanced view of Themistocles, with more of a critique of Themistocles' character. He does not detract from Themistocles' achievements, but he wasn't afraid to highlight his failings either. Meanwhile, the Athenian siege of Agina was still raging on. With substantial Athenian detachments having been sent to Egypt too, Corinth and its allies saw their chance to exploit the fact that Athenian armed forces were stretched thin. So 300 hoplites were sent to the aid of Agina, and at the same time, the Corinthians invaded Megara. They calculated that the Athenians would either shift troops to Megara and thus lose Agina, or stay put in Agina and thus lose Megara due to an overall shortage of troops. However, the Athenians surprised the Corinthians, 
They scraped together the so-called Third Army, composed of men too old and boys too young, for ordinary military service. These would have been men over the age of 50 and boys younger than 20. This ragtag force was sent under the command of Miranides, another general who fought at Plataea, to relieve Megara. The resulting battle was indecisive, but the Athenians miraculously held the field and managed to repel the Corinthian invasion. As a result, they set up a victory trophy. The Corinthians, though, were rebuked by the elders in their city, and so about 12 days later, the Corinthian army attempted to return to the site to set up a trophy of their own. But the Athenian army came forth from Megara, and this time they routed them. During the retreat, a large section of the Corinthian army blundered into a deep trench on a nearby farm, where they found themselves trapped on all sides. The Athenians, being familiar with this area, quickly found them before they could escape. They surrounded the Corinthian army, and the light-armed troops stoned them all to death. Corinth here suffered a severe blow. The other remnants of the army continued its retreat home. This warfare, around the shores and in the waters of the Saronic Gulf, was the prelude to more warfare in other parts of Greece. But it was a prelude that had a unity of its own. Athens was opposed by the Peloponnesian League. But the war so far was mainly conducted by a concert of three states, whose interests lie in the neighborhood of the Saronic Gulf, that being Corinth, Epidaurus, and Agina. Indeed, these states have the Peloponnesian League behind them and were helped by Peloponnesian ships and hoplites, but at the same time, the war had not yet assumed a fully Peloponnesian character. Unlike the later Peloponnesian War, which the Spartans waged with full strength, this undeclared first war was essentially between Sparta's allies and the Athenians. The Spartans were, after all, still recovering from their problems in the Peloponnesus during the previous decades that had decimated their Spartiate numbers, but certain factors occurred that forced Sparta's always reluctant hand once again. With Athens' land empire now steadily increasing each year, in 457 BC, the Spartans finally decided to officially enter the war against Athens. The theater that this played out in was Boeotia. The very small polis of Doris in central Greece was having trouble with their neighbors, the Phocians, and so they sought help from the Spartans, who were moved to do so because Doris was believed to be the ancestral home of all Dorians. If the Spartans had let the subjugation of their mother country go unpunished, their standing amongst the Peloponnesian allies, who were already unhappy at bearing the full brunt of the war effort without their hegemon, would have plummeted to an all-time low and may have led to further defections from the Peloponnesian League. Another motive was the hope of creating an effective opposition and threat to Athens and central Greece. Boeotia had long been unified under the leadership of the Thebans, but their disgrace, arising from their support of the Persians in the Persian Wars, had undermined their position in Boeotia, which allowed the Athenians to gain significant influence in the area, as we previously mentioned. Diodorus reports that the Thebans had reached out to the Spartans and told them that if they would come and assist them in regaining control of Boeotia, they would lead the rest of the Boeotians and wage war on the Athenians so that there would be no need for the Spartans to send their army into Attica. Well, as you might expect, this was eagerly welcomed by the Spartans, who saw that Boeotia, united under Theban leadership, would offer an excellent check upon Athens' growing power and would reduce the importance of the loss of Megara. 
The problem, though, was that since Athens had blocked off the Peloponnesians from marching northward, the only way they could get up to central Greece was by getting on boats and sailing across the Corinthian Gulf. However, if the Athenians, or those helots who were occupying Apoctus, would become aware of that happening, they could very well be taken at sea and have their army destroyed. And so, the Spartans were forced to sneak across the gulf, unexpectedly at night. Successfully making it undetected, they then marched inland with 1,500 Spartan hoplites and 10,000 allied hoplites, led by Nicomedes, a son of Cleombrotus and the current regent for his nephew and underage king, Pleistoanax. They easily forced the Phocians to accept their terms, and thus freed the polis of Doris. At this point, Nicomedes led his army south into Boeotia to link up with the Thebans. Accordingly, the Spartans aided Thebes in restoring them to hegemony of the Boeotian League again by forcing Boeotian cities to rejoin it. When the Spartan army had done its work in Boeotia, its return to the Peloponnese was beset by difficulties. A march through Megara would have been dangerous, for the Athenians held the passes, and it was not safe to cross the Corinthian Gulf once again, for Athenian ships were now on the watch to intercept them. In this embarrassing predicament, they chose to turn to Plan C, which was to march upon Athens itself. Apparently, secret negotiations had been underway between the Spartans and some unnamed aristocratic Athenians who had hoped to eliminate the democracy and return to an oligarchy. And it was likely they who suggested this course of action be taken by the Spartans. Well, when the Athenians realized what was happening, with a strong Spartan army in Boeotia and fearing a treacherous oligarchic attempt to put down their democracy, the democratic-minded Athenians led their army northward to engage the Spartans. The two armies met at Tanagra, a small polis near the Attic-Boeotian frontier. The full force of the Athenians numbered 14,000 hoplites, which included a thousand Argives and an undetermined number of Thessalian cavalry. Before the battle, the exiled pro-Spartan politician, Chimon, approached the Athenian lines in full armor, offering his services. His request was hastily referred to the boule back at Athens, but it was not granted, and so he was ordered to depart. Before going, though, he showed his loyalty to Athens by exhorting his fellow citizens to be brave in battle and defend their democracy. And so they did, but with heavy losses on both sides. When the Thessalian horsemen deserted during the combat, the Spartans were able to obtain a narrow victory, though a strategic defeat to the Athenians. Rather than invading Attica, the Spartans marched home across the Isthmus. Diodorus claims that a four-month truce was agreed upon in the aftermath of the battle, which would explain the Spartans' unhindered march through the Megarid into the Peloponnese. This was their first venture away from the Peloponnese into central Greece during this undeclared war, and it nearly ended in disaster, and so they would not attempt another incursion again. While Sparta may have won the battle, they suffered heavy losses and couldn't afford another such victory. The Athenians, on the other hand, lost many lives, but saved their city from disaster. It might have been expected that this narrow but bloody defeat at Tanagra would have crushed the Athenians' morale and enthusiasm. But the Athenians rebounded well, and two months later, they sent an army, led by Miraonides, to attack the Boeotians. The combined Boeotian army gave battle to the Athenians at Oenophytae. 
The result was that the Athenian army thoroughly trounced the Boeotians. Casualty numbers weren't reported by the ancient sources, but the Athenians defeated the Boeotian army so bad that this victory allowed them to conquer all of Boeotia, except for the heavily fortified city of Thebes, as well as Phocis and Locris, unopposed by any force, and establishing what modern scholars call the Athenian land empire in central Greece. The cities of Boeotia, Phocis, and Locris were not officially incorporated into the Delian League, however but were forced to become allies of Athens, only owing them military service, rather than foros or ships. Tanagra's fortifications were dismantled, and 100 of the richest citizens of Locris were taken back to Athens as hostages. Furthermore, the Athenians established democracies and expelled oligarchic factions in these cities to ensure their loyalty. After the battle, the Athenians also decided to detach the sanctuary of Delphi from the Amphiectonic League and handed it over to the Phocians once again. The driving reason behind this was the Athenians' desire to control the sanctuary and have the right to promanteia, which was the privilege to acquire an oracle before anyone else. Given the fact that oracle giving took place on specific and limited periods of time, this right could actually be very important. However, so that it wasn't blatantly obvious as to what they were doing. They used it as an excuse the pro-Persian behavior that the Amphiectonic League had shown. When the Phocians regained control over the sanctuary, they minted coins on behalf of the Amphictyoni, on which features the head of Apollo and a lyre or laurel. It was at this point too, in 457 BC, that the Athenians concluded the building of the Long Walls, connecting Athens with Piraeus and Phaleron, a distance of about 8 miles, thus making the Athenians virtually impregnable to a siege, provided they retained mastery of the sea. Also in that year, Athens had made an alliance with Segesta, the Elemian city in northwestern Sicily. Furthermore, that same year as well, the forces that had been laying siege to Agina finally induced the city to surrender. As a result, they were forced to pull down their walls, give up their ships, and enter into the Delian League as a foros paying member. They joined Thasus as the richest of the subject states. For these two allied cities, the burden of yearly tribute was 30 talents the largest sum paid at that time by any of the cities whose tribute we know, though much higher tributes were to be imposed later. Furthermore, at this point, a great naval power was taken away from the Peloponnesian side and added to the Athenian cause. Few successes could have been more welcome or more profitable than this for the Athenians. Agina was their arch enemy for centuries, and so the island that offended their eyes was at last powerless in their hands. They now had, without question, commanded the seas, although they probably had it beforehand. Thanks to their alliance with Megara, they also had land security from their northwestern frontier. In addition, the Athenians also controlled two states on the Peloponnese, Troezen on the east coast and Achaea on the Corinthian Gulf. Furthermore, as we just mentioned, the Athenians had come to control the whole region of Boeotia, with the exception of Thebes, as well as Phocis and Locris. An Athenian influence, or pressure, had made democratic governments the norm in those polis. For all of their accomplishments in 457 BC, scholars often refer to this year for the Athenians as an Anus Mirabilis, a common saying for a wonderful year in Latin. The Athenians were so emboldened with their success on both land and sea 
that two years later in 455 BC, they sent an expedition under the general Ptolemides to ravage the coast of the Peloponnese. Although not much is known about him, by this point, Ptolemides had emerged as a leading Athenian general, on par with Pericles and Mironides. His task was to raid the Peloponnesian coastline and gain greater naval control in the Corinthian Gulf. And so, with a force of 4,000 soldiers and the command of the fleet, he circumnavigated the Peloponnesus, raiding naval installations and burning the dockyards at Githium, the chief Spartan port in Laconia. He also seized the city of Methoni in Mycenae, but was forced to abandon it due to the arrival of the Spartan army. He also attacked the island of Cythera. In addition, Ptolemides made an alliance with Zacynthos, an island in the Ionian Sea, and sailing into the Corinthian Gulf, he took the Corinthian colony of Halkis on the northern coast of the Gulf in Aetolia, not to be confused with the Euboean city Halkis. Ptolemides then led the fleet to Naupactus in the region of Locris and settled more refugees from Messenia there, in addition to the previously mentioned Helots. He also followed this up by landing in the territory of Sicyon and defeating a force of Sicyonian hoplites in battle. So as you can see, Ptolemides had tremendous success raiding the coastline of the Peloponnese. The first half decade of the 450s BC marked a period of unprecedented military success for the Athenians in their campaigns in Greece. Corinth and other Spartan allies of note had been comprehensively defeated on land and at sea. Aegina had been crushed, giving the Athenians undisputed control of the Saronic Gulf. The most spectacular of all, though, was the acquisition of the land empire. The Athenian objectives and their ambitions seem to have grown in tandem with their success. Modern scholars have emphasized the critical significance of Athenian control of Megara in enabling the early Athenian successes against the Peloponnesians in the 450s BC. Megara provided a convenient port on the Corinthian Gulf, to which Athenian rowers could be transported over land, and a significant number of ships were probably kept at Megara's port of Pagai throughout the war. Moreover, the Athenians were able to prevent a Peloponnesian army from moving through the Megarid, because the path of Geraneia could have been held by a relatively small force. And so, with the Isthmus of Corinth closed, and Athenian fleets in both the Corinthian and Saronic Gulfs, Attica was unassailable from the Peloponnese. The Peloponnesians' inability to attack Megara proved to be a key component in their loss to the Athenians. However, it has to be asked whether the land empire was a wise foreign policy decision for the Athenians. The maintenance of Athenian control depended on two things. First, the Athenians had to give their full and undivided attention to it, which would require a full military occupation of central Greece. Second, it was crucial that Megara remained loyal and stayed in Athenian hands, thus discouraging a Spartan land invasion. But full military commitment to central Greece was impossible, since the Athenians also needed to conduct campaigns against Persia and were intensifying their imperial control over their maritime empire. Furthermore, the Megarians were traditionally loyal to Sparta, which had only been disturbed by a conflict with the Corinthians. The question is how long would that last? Well, Athens' remarkable string of successes would come to a sudden halt, as things in Egypt were about to take a turn for the worse. For whatever reason, it took Artaxerxes four years to respond to the siege of Memphis. 
He had tried to bribe off the Spartans to invade Attica, which would draw the Athenians from Egypt, but to no avail. And it seems after Athens' success in 457 BC, he was finally convinced that a military response was needed. So in 456 BC, he sent a large army of 300,000 men overland into Egypt under the command of Megabyzus and Artabazus. At Cilicia, the Persians gathered a fleet of 300 triremes from the Cilicians, Phoenicians, and Cypriots. Once again, both of these numbers are probably exaggerated. Anyways, although neither author gives many details, when they finally arrived in Egypt in 455 BC, the Egyptians quickly capitulated and lifted the siege, forcing the Athenians to seek sanctuary on Prosipitus an island formed by a canal which joined the Canopic and Sebenitic channels of the Nile Delta, where Megabysis laid siege to them. After 18 months over the winter of 454-453 BC, he was able to lift the siege by draining all of the channels around the Nile and thus digging canals, with the result that the island was joined to the mainland. This left the Greek ships high and dry and created a direct land path to the island. The Persian army rushed forth into the island, and Thucydides reports that a terrible disaster befell the Athenians, as fighting in Egypt ended with almost the complete annihilation of the Athenian fleet and army. Only a few survived by fleeing through Libya to Cyrene, and from there they managed to return to Athens. To make matters worse, Thucydides mentions that a relief squadron of 50 triremes, sent to relieve the siege of Prosipitus, was unaware that the Athenians had been defeated and so they were attacked by the Persian fleet at Mendesium, one of the mouths of the Nile Delta. One of the ships were destroyed, with only a handful of those managing to escape and return to Athens. Thucydides and Stesius disagree on the total number of casualties, because they disagree on the size of the original force, as we mentioned before. With the revolt in Egypt having been abated, Megabysus led Inaros and his other rebel and Greek prisoners back to Susa. Artaxerxes promised that they wouldn't be executed, but his mother, Amestris, who was the wife of Xerxes, wanted revenge for the death of Achaemenes, and so he gave her what she wished. Stesius tells us that Inaros was executed on three stakes, while 50 Greeks were decapitated. The Greek word, anastarothe, used here to describe the method of this execution, could either mean impalement or crucifixion on a single stake. So take your pick. Athenian foreign policy after the political success of Ephialtes and the defeat of Cimon, had encompassed more ambitious goals than campaigning against Persia and gaining a greater control over the Delian League. Alliances with Argos, Thessaly, and Megara, and the campaigns against Agina and in central Greece at Tanagra and Onanophyti, culminating in the land empire, reflected the Athenians' new territorial objectives. This warfare in mainland Greece would have roused little interest amongst the League allies, but they are found fighting alongside the Athenians. This must have caused great resentment within the League, as such warfare had little to do with their original aims. Even the Egyptian expedition, although more in keeping with the original aims, would not necessarily have been more attractive to the allies, owing to the distance from the Aegean and the length of the campaign. Some of the allies would have seen this as an ideal time to revolt, since the Athenians would have found it very difficult to bring them back into line while fighting on so many fronts. The defeat of the Greek forces in Egypt affected Athens' relations with their League allies, 
but there is a disagreement amongst modern scholars about the size of the defeat, as there was amongst ancient scholars too, and also the way that the allies and the Athenians responded to it. Some believe that the loss of life was enormous, as they lost most of the 250 ships sent there, per the numbers of Thucydides, and enormous too was the loss in morale. This disaster thus was so great that it caused a whole rash of rebellions in the Delian League, and the Athenians were occupied with these rebellions for some time to come, as they reorganized the League and stabilized the region. As a direct consequence, the Athenians would intensify their arche, or rule, by adopting harsher methods of control. Others argue that the Athenians suffered a serious setback, but not a crippling disaster. They believe that the greater part of the original 200 ships had returned to Greece after the initial victory, and that perhaps it was only about 40 ships, plus the 50 that came as a relief squadron, for a total of 90, per the numbers of Stesius, that would have been lost in the final conflict. This still large, but not as a disastrous of a defeat, would have had only a small effect on the Athenians' dominant control over their allies but did lead them to carry out a general reorganization of the League, which had been weakened by revolts, often inspired by the Persians, throughout the 450s BC. The Athenians had long since discontinued attending the meetings of the assembly at Delos, but one of the consequences of this Egyptian campaign was that the Athenians decided to move the treasury of the League from Delos to the Athenian Acropolis, in the back room of the Parthenon which they would begin to build very shortly. And so, the tribute money passed from the protection of Apollo to the custody of Athena. Though their ostensible purpose was to protect the money from a potential Persian offensive in the Aegean, Delos was probably no more endangered then as it had been previously, and the Athenians' decision to move the treasury was probably a power play designed to demonstrate their superiority as well as to gain control of the League's finances, so that they could make more easy the use of it for their own purposes. Also, up until now, all money put into the League treasury was being used for supporting the Navy, and ostensibly for League purposes, although the Athenians did use it for their own purposes at Thassos. But now, the Athenians instituted a new policy that essentially transformed the League into the Athenian Empire, since it was no longer anything like a voluntary confederacy because they took one-sixtieth of what was put into the treasury every year as a donation to Athena Polius, as the aparche, or first fruits, which is another way of saying it was a donation to Athens, and they used it however they saw fit. After 454 BC, a new policy also was implemented. The Athenian boule reassessed the tribute totals every four years, which were released at the Great Panathenaea Festival. Tributary cities sent their envoys to learn the amount owed, and payments were then due the following spring, before the celebration of the city Dionysia. The money was counted out in the presence of the council and given to the Helenotami, or the treasurers of the League. Furthermore, it is at this point that the first tribute lists are available, as we have five of them dating from 454 to 450 BC. By the fifth tribute list, though, a significantly large number of islands appear for the first time. The reasons for this are also a source of dispute amongst modern historians. Some argue that these islands had been withholding their foros through discontent with Athens, meaning that they had revolted during the Egyptian campaign until they were forced to pay up, while others argue 
that these islands had still been supplying ships and then became Foros Pain allies for the first time during this period, which would explain their absence and then reappearance at the end. Regardless, all in all, between 200 to 300 allies had been paying tribute on one of these lists, while only 17 states still furnished ships to Athens, and within a decade, 14 of those would eventually only pay cash, with the exception of Lesbos, Chios, and Samos. Because of all of this, historians tend to use the year of 454 BC as a convenient date to stop referring to the Delian League, and begin speaking of the Athenian Empire, although in reality, the transformation had been going on for quite some time, as we have mentioned. But it was at this point too, where we start to see increased signs of Athens tightening its grip to the point where there is no doubt that they were controlling an empire. On the next episode, while Athens was putting increasing pressure on her allies, we will see the situation on the mainland starting to turn out a lot like the Egyptian campaign, as their fortunes at the turn of the decade contrast drastically than with those in the early 450s BC. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 43, Imperial Athens. Thank you.